Hey, welcome to the New Home Insights Podcast by John Burns Real Estate Consulting. I'm Dean Worley, your host. Each episode, we're gonna bring you some of the best minds in the housing business talking about some fascinating topics or trend or innovation or issue, just like the one you're about to listen to. Enjoy. Welcome to New Home Insights, the John Burns Real Estate Consulting Podcast about the U.S. housing market. I'm your host, Dean Worley. Today, we're going to take a look at kind of the big picture. We're going to talk with one of the biggest real estate investors, really biggest investors in the world about how he looks at deals in this ever-changing market landscape. We're also going to learn from his past a little bit to help us adapt to our future. All of this means that we are joined today by Jason Keller. He's the managing director at Oak Tree Capital Management. It's a company with a global footprint, a wide sweep of assets, but also some major stakes in the home building world. Jason, why don't you say hi to the listeners and then tell us briefly about Oak Tree and what you do there. Well, uh, thank you, Dean. It's great to be here with you today. Yeah, I'm Jason Keller. I am a managing director and the head of residential investments at Oak Tree. Um, I, I'm a little bit embarrassed to be called the largest invest, one of the largest investors in the world. Uh, my my firm, Oak Tree, is uh, nationally recognized. Uh, I work under the umbrella of our real estate investment platform, which has been a part of Oak Tree since its inception uh, 25 years ago. And um, But under that umbrella, uh, we've been investing actively in the residential space now for you know really the last 13 years that I've been at Oak Tree. As I'm, I'm sure most of your listeners know, Oak Tree is, uh, you know, really alternative asset manager in the broadest sense, 20 plus different investment strategies, uh, really uh, centered around a distressed debt focus, but now very broad in its breadth and um, the the reach of, uh, of its investment scope. Um, and as I noted before, I've worked for the real estate group and have been running um, our residential investment practice for the last 13 years. Right. Yeah. You guys have your hands on a lot of pies, but we're going to focus on residential, but later on, we're definitely going to talk about some other asset classes as well. So let's start with kind of, you know, take us through a couple of major pivot points before we get to the current pivot point. So we'll skip right over the 1990s when you were, I guess, driving around in your Volkswagen van again with skis on the top. Yes, exactly. We'll (laughs) we'll skip right over that and go straight to the early 2000s and the dot-com bust. You were really just starting to get your feet wet in this sector, but that, you know, had a huge impact. It had a big impact on the economy. Um, but maybe not as big impact on the housing sector. How did how did things change for you in that early dot-com bust era? Or did you even need to really change your strategy or, or look for alternative strategies from that? Well, you know, during the dot-com bust, I was actually really more focused on commercial assets. Okay. My, my recollection of that in, in 2000 is that we had bought a hotel in downtown San Francisco uh, early in 2000. And I remember kind of going there as we were going through the due diligence and you couldn't get a reservation at a restaurant, you know, the streets were packed. Mm-hmm. And I was struck just, you know, a year and a half later, how you could fire a cannonball through uh, the streets and, you know, seemingly not hit anybody. Um, so that was, that was really my first exposure to a, you know, to a, a really sharp, uh, but focused downturn. Um, and, you know, at DLJ, the interesting thing was, is that as an asset-focused investor, we had a limited number of options in, in terms of the, the palette of things that we could do. Uh, 
you know, uh, we we went in, we took a look at the time, you know, when asset prices finally started to come down, you know, we started buying up some uh, uh, office buildings in San Francisco, uh, more hospitality, that type of thing at BLJ. But really, you know, it was asset-based investing. And so there was a limited amount of, of types of investments that we could do. And one of the reasons why I went over to Oak Tree was that, we could do more, that the, the palette was extraordinarily broad mm-hmm. in the types of investments that we could make. And, and is that kind of a critical thing to, to keep in mind during any kind of a crisis situation that you, you, you might, it might lead to different investments or different approaches and you have to be sort of nimble? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we, we, when we think about residential, we tend to think of just land development and home building, right? But, but residential is huge. I mean, the, it's the largest asset class in the country, right? So, I mean, I mean, not to diverge, but when we take a look at what we've done at Oak Tree over the last 13 years, I mean, we have entitled land, we've developed land, we've loaned money on land, and we have our own land banking company, but we also build homes through joint ventures around the company, but we also build them through the three home building companies that we own. If the mortgage on those homes goes delinquent during, you know, like they did during the GFC, we created a platform that went out and bought $5 billion of non-performing loans. And then we bought our own servicing company to oversee the restructuring. Then, you know, keeping this, this going, when we saw the homes going on the auction block, we moved into fix and flip lending and we built up as one of the largest fix and flip lenders in the country, uh, which we sold a couple of years ago. So, you know, there's a lot that can be done if you have a platform and, and enough capital and, and the trust of your investors to sort of step out outside of, you know, just the land development, yeah. the home building box. So you have to be omnivorous and you can't be afraid to go into whatever looks like it might be a good opportunity. Well, yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, the, the point is that re- the world of residential investing is enormous uh, and, and you have to be able to do more. I mean, it's almost like you've, you've probably heard the military lament that they're always prepared to fight the last war, which is leading them vulnerable to yeah. change, right? Well, likewise, yeah. I think everybody's always sort of prepared to fight the last recession. Uh, and, mm. and for us, the GFC, was it was a housing-focused recession. But today, you know, we might, obviously, the, the opportunities are always going to be different with every individual sort of market shock, whether it is market specific or whether it's national or global in nature. Yeah. I mean, I've trained a lot of disciplines you, 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 in some in, in history, it's called kind of a lessons learned bias where you are, you're, you're learning the last less, whatever the lesson was from the last, whatever event, that's what you apply to the next one, even though they might be radically different. <laughs> Very true. I think some folks might be surprised though to hear about the fix and flip that you went that that, that back in, in the 2000s you guys were were doing fix and flip and and you know you'd, you'd think of uh, such a a large entity but again you're you're omnivorous and you look at any opportunity. We did take a look at it and said how do we want to play in the individual home you know renovation play and uh, and we decided that we didn't want to actually put equity into the little fix and flip guys. It was too granular. Uh, it was, and it was going to be uh, too hard and uh, to, to track and there's too, too much opportunity for graph. But as a lender, we felt like we could control that. And we sort of rode that, um, that home renovation wave upwards. And, and when we were saying, okay, we want to move into infill home building, uh, we made the decision that we went out and bought building them up right now. <laughs> 
So, okay. So, so let's fast forward a little bit to the, I guess the, the big one, or at least the last big one until this big one, which is the great recession. Mm-hmm. Maybe just take us through how you got through the worst of it early on and maybe, and then how you pivoted after you had a chance to assess, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you were assessing and reassessing and taking advantage right away. What was, what was going on then? I knew, and you were by this time at Oak Tree. Yes, that's right. So I'd moved over to Oak Tree in 2007. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, uh, Oak Tree had made the decision prior to my joining. I, I could brag about the decision because it had nothing to do with it. They'd made a decision in 2005 to liquidate all of their assets. So they actually, in 2007, Oak Tree hadn't made a purchase for two years uh, when I bought. And it simply, or sorry, when I joined the firm, I had bought nothing. Uh, so by the time I came in, they really had a clean slate and left us in a unique position of being able to take a look at the broader environment and say, where do we see opportunity? And whereas my colleagues, of course, were seeing lots of opportunity all over the place and everything from hospitality to commercial, I mean, to multifamily, to office, et cetera, et cetera. um, I took a look at the, you know, the slowly disintegrating uh, housing industry and raised my hand and said, I'd like to build a platform around this. And we, you know, it, it, it was this idea at the time in 2007 through 2009 and 10 that as the markets were collapsing in, in the residential that, you know, housing can't go anywhere. It, it, we need it. It's the largest asset class. And even in 2009, when you felt like there wasn't going to be another new home built in the, the whole country for 20 years, <laughs> you know, taking a look at it, you know, from a, a couple of steps back, it became clear that this could be a once in a generation opportunity to put a lot of money to work in an industry that Canada just sort of had to come back at some point. Yeah. Even though you, all you heard at the time was vacant homes and replacement costs. So you're right. It seemed like there wasn't any more profitable building for forever, but you saw that as an opportunity. Yes. Yes. And that was when we went in and we started buying up. That was our, you know, we started up buying, um, um, early on, it was everything from CFD bonds. We actually had a platform where we were buying uh, effectively, you know, pro- property tax like debt CFD bonds in California. Uh, that sort of kicked things off. And then we moved into land development where we were buying up uh, bankrupt pieces of uh, dirt uh, from banks and, re- and uh, repurposing those. That was, that, that was fantastic. And then we moved from there into asset uh, more asset-heavy acquisitions like distressed land development and uh, and some distressed home building uh, joint ventures. Uh, so you know we we were kind of led uh, baby steps, starting off in individual land deals up through the big corporate uh, home building acquisitions. This might sound like a weird question, but how do you? I mean, you're clearly very forward-looking for your opportunities. How do you? And you mentioned again, you don't want to have be sort of rely on the last time rely on the last event so how do you do you force yourself to be forward-looking and how do you uh, prevent yourself from being bound by that last lesson i mean it's it's not it's not easy it's it's human nature to to uh, base decisions on the on the last lesson well it, it really is i mean and i, I don't really we you know we sort of fast forward here we talk a little bit about covid but i mean once again when when we moved into this last recession uh, or sorry into the covid led uh, recession here Everybody was thinking about what happened during the GFC, right? But if you take a look at the underlying fundamentals, the supply-demand fundamentals, you say to yourself, it doesn't really look like it could be, at least in the short term, uh, uh, there's going to be a 
a GFC-like recession in the housing industry. I think you just have to be a little bit data focused. And, and candidly, I'll, I'll give you a little plug here. I mean, I'm obviously a huge fan of John Burns Real Estate, and I love those 250-page decks that you guys put together, you know, full of, of data. Because I, I think that if you remain data focused and try to divorce yourself from the emotion of the moment and and the passions of what's going on around you, that you can find those opportunities uh, that that people are missing. And so when the the home builders stock started collapsing in March, you know, we took a look at that and said that that looks like an interesting opportunity to go out and buy some non-control positions in home builders. So you're right. I, I think it is difficult to, to separate yourself emotionally from everything else that's going on. Around. That is the hard part, isn't it? That's the, that's the right word, emotionally. Because So let the data, let the numbers speak for themselves and rise above the, let's be honest, often irrationality of, of the stock yeah. market. Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting, speaking uh, of COVID, I mean, um, housing sits firmly at the base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? I mean, it's not like, yeah. uh, you know, a, a steak dinner uh, can be substituted with a <laughs> peanut butter sandwich, but housing... Housing is, uh, you can delay household formation. People can double up for some, for some time in households, but it can't be denied at the end of the day. That makes sense. I mean, there's a couple of things above it, but this is a family podcast. So I can't <laughs> talk about at least one of those. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> housing is. Housing is core. Housing is, is as fundamental as it really gets. That's, a, that, that's, that's key anytime in, in this industry, any crisis. Uh, so let's... So let's uh, flip to before we will get to, to COVID and the current situation here yeah. in just a moment, but let's flip to kind of how you look at, uh, you know, how you assess your investments more generally. First, let's stick with the residential space and let's talk about uh, sort of market to market, I guess, and then we'll get to some specific mm -hmm. deals and, and how, you, how you assess specific deals. But first, how do you assess different markets or even different housing product against other markets and other product. Yes. Does that make sense yes. at all? So I would say that I, I'm a huge fan of demographic, uh, uh, demographic studies and, uh, and watching, you know, the broader movement of, uh, of people and generations. I, I actually do love uh, Burns's book uh, on generational changes and demographic changes and how people raise their children and, and where we see people moving on, moving. Um, you mean big shifts ahead? Oh, that that would be the one. I said I wasn't going to plug. I wasn't going to plug. <laughs> I am. Uh, good stuff. I, I actually like it. I, I think that it's very. I think it's very apropos to uh, what we're talking about here. There's another book called The Accidental Superpower by Peter Zahan that talks about demographics uh, in depth as well, which I always I also find sort of interesting when I'm thinking about the future. But to back to it to your specific question. Um, I really do watch where jobs and people are moving and we do uh, and, and then we take a look at that and compare it to the property type uh, that we're thinking about creating. So uh, I am actually a big believer in infill housing. Um, I will say that I am a little concerned right now about uh, the, the, the big cities uh, and for a couple of reasons, the demographic changes of the millennials moving out to the suburbs to raise their kids could be exacerbated, of course, by what's happening uh, with COVID right now. But but really, I, I really look to demographics. And so if I'm out in the Bay Area and we're taking a look at a piece of dirt, you know, should that be, is it close enough in to take advantage of the job trends there? Or is it 
is it further out? And if it's further out, you know, should we be taking a look at uh, senior housing, for example, yeah. for you know people to sell their homes in the infill areas and, and move out to the suburbs? Um, but I, I really do believe that demographics and, and job trends are probably the first thing that we look at uh, when we're looking at markets. And I, I think that's also worth noting when we're talking about where uh, where we want to invest. It's recognizing where I can be competitive as well. Uh, because we've been involved in these large-scale home builders in the past, I understand very, very well the the competitive advantages that they bring to bear. And for us to try to backstop a small private home builder and send them up competing head-to-head against, you know, Toll or DR Horton, you know, yeah. I recognize that that's probably not going to play out for us. However, if I can find a place where my capital can be can can compete in a specialized niche, well, that's that's really interesting to me. And so the infill opportunities are one thing. Uh, maybe it's a, a specialized builder of a of a product type, you know, um, that the public's haven't been concentrating on, or it is a platform investment, which rather than competing against the home builders, we are partnering with them to provide a capital. Okay. Okay, Jason. So, how do you let's switch over to something? How you assess specific deals, whether they be land deals or joint ventures or land banking or whatever? Uh, and, and, or is it the same? Is it still demographics, 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 and jobs, jobs, jobs? Or are there different inputs for you? Uh, well, we're always looking for the kind of the hook, the reason why our capital is going to be competitive, or the reason why something would. Um, would would make sense. Um, I, I'm I want to find that the point of distress in a in a particular environment. I want to find the the, the rationale why uh, this partner is going to to be competitive. Um, and so there really has to be some kind of story behind it, an opportunity to buy it a little bit less expensive, uh, a place where our expertise or our relationships on the lending side can perhaps give us an edge on financing on, on financial engineering. Okay. I'm asking this for every smaller developer or builder out there, but do you ever just kind of go with your gut, even if maybe the numbers don't say go? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, the, the, the answer here is at Oak Tree, uh, no, actually, we never go with our gut. <laughs> it would be kind of fun to be able to say that, yeah, we just took a flyer on this one. But, you know, even on, uh, you know, even investments that seem like a no brainer, we will actually really we'll put together a 20 or a 30 page deck digging down into it and saying okay if this looks too good what's wrong well there must be something wrong what are we missing here that's kind of tends to be how we look at those no-brainer investments we thought oh we must be stupid and we're missing something that everybody else is until we really convince ourselves that no we're not the stupid people at the table we, we think that this actually makes sense are you looking for reasons to say no to a deal or reasons to say yes? I really like that question because uh, you get to the heart of uh, the conundrum that is being an, a, an investor, and which is that at the end of the day, I am paid to put money out. Uh, that's what Oak Tree does. That's what investors expect us to do. But my career over the long term is dependent on making the right decisions. So it's always so much easier to actually say no. You, you, yeah. but, but you have to keep the, the bigger picture in mind that, you know, that this is our job is to say yes. And so it's that tension between the short-term need to put money out 
against the long-term need to protect your, your career, your reputation, and, and most importantly, that of your firm and your investors. You got to protect the investor's interests yeah. first and foremost, even though they are obviously the ones that are giving you the money and telling you, you know, we expect you to put this to work. Uh, so there, there's a tension there. It's a healthy tension. And, um, and it's one that I think keeps us all very focused on, um, on not just saying no, because no is easy, but being very judicious when we do say yes. Let's, let's assess briefly, at least let's look at uh, non-residential space and how do you assess non-residential opportunities versus residential opportunities? Or are they just completely apples and oranges? Uh, n- well, they, they are apples and oranges, but uh, like any good fruit salad, you're going to want to have all of it in, in the uh, final product, right? And, and you'll even have that broad palette within sectors. So like hotels, you might have some boutique, but you might have some major tourist uh, plays too. Absolutely. Like we, we always laughed actually during, uh, call it, you know, 2009 to 13, we, we were buying these absolutely gorgeous, you know, resorts and, and, and key hotels, beautiful, you know, five-star uh, hotels that look great on the cover of, you know, of a magazine. But by 2015, 2016, you're buying, uh, you're buying, let, let's just say, you know, a lot less attractive, on the you know attractive looking uh, investments and you've sold out all of those really you know spectacular looking properties but now you know paying a four cap for a you know a five-star hotel makes no sense okay okay so now our listeners are are with beta breath to get to the current the COVID pandemic so let's turn more to the present here has the COVID pandemic changed your outlook your method, for instance, I mean, or even at the biggest picture, is it, are you looking at assets differently, like, you know, industrial warehousing up, maybe retail down, something like that? Uh, so, I mean, the, broadly speaking, so taking a step back, yes, we've absolutely been, mm-hmm. we've been playing a, a, a mix of defense and offense. Uh, we shuttered our hotels early on. Uh, we went back and yeah. assessed every single one of our office tenants to make sure where, you know, where we mm-hmm. thought we might have experience. And, and might have to go to lenders. Uh, we're very happy to say that we had very, uh, that we had, by this point, we had limited exposure on hotels. We have almost, uh, well, almost no exposure to, uh, uh, you know, office buildings that uh, with WeWork in them. We, I think we have zero WeWork uh, tenants, so that was positive for us. Um, okay. But when we, when we kind of dive down into the residential space, uh, that's where I actually thought that we were going to find really interesting opportunities, but it wasn't going to be in the assets. It was uh, you know, such a quick shock that everybody just sort of sat on their assets and we really haven't seen land change hands at distressed values because COVID happened so quickly. Right. But where the bomb went off this time, which was completely yeah. different from the other recessions was it went off in the mortgage industry, right? I mean, think of these poor mortgage REITs. I, you know, <laughs> these guys come in, they buy a few performing bonds, they buy a few performing, uh, you know, fix and flip loans, uh, have a long lunch, and and you know, and then the government comes in and drops a bomb in the middle of this industry, saying nobody needs to pay their mortgage anymore. And it's it was the right decision to make for the benefit of the home of the homeowners, but you know the the ramifications of that decision have profound impacts on the mortgage, uh, the mortgage industry. And what was different about this than prior in, uh, industry shocks was that uh, we realized the fragility 
of the mortgage origination and acquisition and aggregation uh, industry because things seized up immediately. Do you see the mortgage? I, I mean, there's, there's kind of different takes on how that's going to play out. You know, what is it? Something like eight and a half percent of mortgages are in forbearance, but even uh, something like 22% of those folks actually pay their main mortgage. Do you see that being the take for most folks seems like, oh, that's going to play out relatively well. It won't lead to a ton of distress. Do you, do you see that? Well, actually, I mean, if, you, if we go back three months, I got is, by the way, stepping back. I think that your take right now is correct, that with the benefit of three months of sort of seasoning to see how this all played out, that people are saying, ah, the government stepped in, they provided liquidity, the GSEs, uh, you know, all put uh, uh, basically gates around uh, and and guidelines out on how they were going to deal with forbearances. And so what you see now is the mortgage industry is healthy, the most profitable that they've been in a decade. Uh, they're out there minting money right now, printing mortgages, three percent. But if you go back, Dean, three months ago, even as the even as the the Treasury rates were collapsing, mortgage rates were going the opposite direction, and mortgage mortgage origination was was actually tightening up because nobody knew how they were going to handle, you know, the how how are you going to handle forbearances? What were the GSEs going to do if somebody didn't make a payment? Were you going to make that? loan originator buy that loan back. Well, where is he going to get the money to buy the loan back? The the whole industry seized up for the moment. Um, you know, we didn't believe that there was going to be a major impact on home values. I mean, normally, of course, you know, uh, housing is related to unemployment and housing and, and housing pricing is related to income growth. And both of those uh, unemployment and housing income growth were headed negative. But this really to us looked like a short-term disconnect, uh, particularly as it related to how fast things had gone south in the home builders and the mortgage industry. This particular recession right now, the opportunity looks like it's going to be in the mortgage origination and aggregation space. Do, do you look forward in how you assess the residential market now post-COVID? For instance, are you you mentioned a little bit ago that in the residential space, maybe we are a little more suburban, maybe we're home officing more, maybe buyers would be a little less urban oriented. Is that impacting your decisions now? Uh, yes, it is actually. I, I've gotta be honest in that I'm a, I'm a little nervous about American cities right now. Um, it, the we already had a little bit of an exodus going back to the demographics discussion of the millennials uh, moving out of the cities to the suburbs now that they've formed households and and sort of are at that that child raising stage. So we already had that bit of a demographic exodus, and I had been hoping that they would be backfilled by retirees that were kind of moving into the cities to take advantage of urban living and the ease of living. Um, but I am concerned right now about you know, whether or not those, uh, those retirees will be willing to move into the cities uh, in an environment where they, they might not feel as safe. Uh, and, and so I, I actually am a little bit concerned about that. Oak Street in general had been more focused on what we called the growth markets, high growth markets in, in, in more suburban type environments, um, you know, Phoenix, Las Vegas, as opposed to LA or New York City. Um, and so we, we had already sort of been shifting, uh, for the most part, out of those markets, broadly speaking. Um, I am a little concerned that the COVID situation might be exacerbating uh, that demographic shift. 
I'm kind of curious. I mean, because Dean, I know you guys do a lot of work on this. Yeah. I'm curious if you have an opinion on that as well. We, we do see demand shifting a little bit to lower densities, to more suburban, to uh, and, and product changing too in kind. The saving grace, though, for a lot of the really urban core areas will be supply. The Bay Area is a good example where, yeah, we do see some of that demand moving to more outlying areas, but supply is just so constrained and has been forever. And there's a lot of other major metro areas like that as too. I think depending on, on supply levels, uh, and maybe it's more in the forest sales sector than it is in apartments, that could, could save them from this diminished demand. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, I agree 100% with that. Let's end with kind of your crystal ball, because I, I, I like to do this, put you on the spot, which is my favorite thing. So what, what, if anything, do you think you will do differently on more or less permanent basis, or at least the, the midterm, at least, due to COVID? Um, well, I, I think we need to be really careful um, right now about, about unemployment and, uh, and where that's going. I, I, I know you're looking for more of a permanent answer here, but I don't know. I don't, I don't tend to make permanent shifts based on, on, on kind of one-time events. Um, I, I made the point that I feel like this housing shock, the initial housing shock was overwrought uh, given the short-term disconnect uh, between unemployment and housing over the long-term. However, I I'm, I'm worried about, sort of the urban versus suburban trends. And I'm worried about unemployment. Yeah. And I am worried about a sort of loss of manufacturing jobs as it relates to, uh, you know, uh, you know, tech oriented jobs and, and whether or not we have the education infrastructure in place to really um, bring people up to take advantage of those new types of em employment. So I'm focused on unemployment going forward. I'm focused on demographics going forward. I don't think I'm not certain that COVID is going to have a real lasting impact. I might regret actually saying that, but you know, when we took we, when we when we took a look <laughs> about post 9/11, we we all thought, well, we better move away from urban high rise or a high rise office, and that it yeah. didn't end up being a, a real a real sea change in in people's decisions to live in urban areas or live high rise. And I, I guess maybe I've got my blinders a little bit here. Dean in, in thinking that COVID might not yeah. be uh, as impactful five years from now. I kind of hope it isn't. Maybe that's my hopes being not my, my elect, uh, but um, you know, I, I, that's the time will tell whether or not I'm right on that. Yeah, honestly, I, I, I personally think you are. I think we, when you're caught up in the moment of something, especially a momentous event like this, you do tend to think it's natural to think of these things as long lasting, but this is this uh, such an exogenous event that happened to us, or, or we sort of did to ourselves, as opposed to uh, like the Great Recession, that it could very well have minimal, if any, long-term. Yeah, would, like I said, time will tell. Uh, maybe we'll look back on this and we'll both say, "Oh, I wish we hadn't said that." <laughs> I know. And then we'll just, we'll we'll delete it off the off the upload. Um, uh, well, Jason, <laughs> I I really appreciate it. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. No, it's my my pleasure, and uh, look forward to seeing you in person again sometime hopefully very soon yes me too all right thanks everyone for listening that's it for now so until next time i'm dean worley and this has been the new home insights podcast so long